Henry Kelsey describes encountering a new type of bear that neither he nor any other European has ever seen or heard of, um, with great curved claws and grizzled fur with a huge hump on its back. And they say it's the bear that makes food of man. That's Adam Schultz, Royal Canadian Geographical Society explorer in residence. He's our guest talking about the earliest Hudson's Bay Company explorers as the HBC turns 350. Here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling you. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that or history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada. Welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Today, we continue with our journey into the history of Canada, seen through the prism of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. And we first want to thank HBC Heritage, whose support has made this podcast series possible. Once a massive fur trading empire that administered one-twelfth of the Earth's surface, including much of Canada, the Hudson's Bay Company came into being on May 2, 1670, when the English king, Charles II, granted a group of merchants the rights to trade furs in the watershed of Hudson's Bay. Last episode, we visited the site of the first HBC trading post in the James Bay Cree Nation of Wiscoganish. Today, we wander further afield. When you think of the early fur trade, your mind is likely to go to the voyageurs in birch bark canoes, singing and paddling on rivers and lakes from Montreal right up into the prairies. But that came later. For the first century or more of its existence, the business of the Hudson's Bay Company was done largely from forts on the coast of Hudson's and James Bay, Scottish and English traders waiting for First Nations peoples to bring furs to them. But there were some remarkable exceptions to that. And today we're going to track some of the greatest journeys of explorations ever taken, following the 17th and 18th century expeditions of early Hudson's Bay Company explorers, Henry Kelsey, Samuel Hearn, and the great Dene leader, Matanabe. Guiding us on this journey is one of the world's great modern-day explorers. Our CGS explorer-in-residence, Adam Schultz, is best known for his epic solo canoe journeys across Canada's north. I heard the most terrifying noise I've ever heard in my life around 4 a.m. outside my tent. It sounded like a half kind of snort, half bellow. So I unzipped the screen door of my tent and about 10 feet away is this huge mux ox and he's yeah. glaring right at me. He was snorting, he was pawing the ground, he was in an attack mode. Exciting moments like that have helped Adam produce best-selling books, including Alone Against the North and, most recently, Beyond the Trees about his solo 4,000-kilometer canoe trip across the Canadian Arctic. Adam is also a leading expert on the early Canadian explorers who preceded him. He has spent years poring over ancient, dusty explorer journals and accounts, 
earning himself a PhD from McMaster University in the process. Adam and I met, pre-pandemic, in the Sir Christopher and Dace reading room at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society headquarters in Ottawa. Our conversation took us to the late 1600s at York Factory on the western shore of Hudson's Bay and the story of a young HBC apprentice named Henry Kelsey. So Henry Kelsey, like a lot of uh, figures from the early fur trade, the 1700s, uh, we don't know a whole lot about his, his background. I mean, he's kind of shrouded in mystery, but we know that um, he entered the Hudson Bay Company's service as an apprentice uh, when he was described as, quote, just a young lad. Um, we figure he was about 16 when he was apprenticed to the Hudson Bay Company. So, I mean, he was quite young. You can think of what it would be like. You're shipped off to what Kelsey, coming from the British Isles, uh, would have regarded as the very ends of the earth. I mean, the most desolate place he could have been shipped off to, the the subarctic coast of Hudson Bay, you know, a pretty bleak place by anyone's standard, even even in the uh, the First Nations, the Korea in that area, they, they even then described it as a inhospitable and bleak place. They preferred to go inland to the boreal forest. They didn't want to be down on the coast where uh, for nine months of the year everything is bitterly cold and there's polar bears roaming about, or for the other two months of the year or so you're, you're eaten alive by the highest concentration of black flies in, and mosquitoes in the entire world. So it's a pretty bleak and inhospitable place that this boy um, gets sent to as an apprentice to the Hudson Bay Company. And he wouldn't have had a whole lot of education, obviously, uh, because if you did, you would have better prospects in life than to be apprenticed to the fur trade. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that the, the people from the economic uh, margins of society uh, would, have been, would have gone into. That would have been Kelsey's background, you know, something from the, from the lower uh, middle class or even below that uh, would have been his background. Not a whole lot of formal education, but he knew how to read and write. And um, he must have liked... Um, poetry because he fancied himself something of a poet. Uh, his surviving diaries make that clear. He liked to write in verse. He maybe wasn't going to win any prizes for his poetry, but um, if there was one for effort, he would probably get that. And uh, when he arrived on the coast of Hudson Bay, um, he was, you know, he, he stood out from his, there must have been something about him that marked him out as, as different. Um, it was written by his superiors that um, he was never more pleased uh, then when he was traveling in the company of the, the local indigenous people, that he really uh, took to it. You know, he, he had some sort of natural affinity um, for making these cross-cultural cross contacts. Kelsey was one of those people, and I think he would have excelled anywhere he was sent. If he was sent to Russia or China, I think he would have gone on well because he was young and he had that uh, adaptability. He was said to be uh, very skilled in languages. They said that he could pick up um, the language of the Assiniboine, who he traveled with, really well, and that made him um, valuable to the company because you have to be able to speak the language to do business in the place, and that's an asset that people um, still recognize as being important in business to this day. Um, so he seemed to be pretty pretty intelligent, even if he didn't have a lot of formal schooling. He was obviously a quick study um, because he lasted. I mean, that's the other thing. A lot of people didn't last in the early days of the Hudson Bay Company. They were shipped off, as I said, to one of the most inhospitable environments in the in the world. I mean, some of them took some of them committed suicide because they found the isolation overpowering. I mean, it's it's bitterly cold. It's at a northern latitude, so it's dark for much of the year. Candles are a luxury that few people can afford. Uh, they don't have flashlights or any sort of artificial light, so you're living in darkness wow. uh, for the winter. And even if you read the firsthand accounts from the Hudson Bay Company, even with their roaring fires of black spruce and tamarack in their hearse, it, it did very little. I mean, they describe ice 
inches thick on the inside of their cabin walls, never mind the outside, um, water would freeze inside their cabins because they were very drafty uh, and the heat really wasn't reflected that far from the fireplace. So this is a bleak place, uh, but Kelsey, he excels at it and he'll rise through the ranks of the Hudson Bay Company and spend years um, on the coast of Hudson Bay. And he makes his name as an explorer though, which is, as you alluded to, not something the Hudson Bay Company had been doing very much of Um, outside of Kelsey, both before and after him. So what prompted his journeys then? I mean, the points of the forts were to wait for the First Nations people to bring the furs to them. So were they running out or was there... Well, the Hudson's Bay Company were supposed to um, explore and chart the lands that had been granted to them under this great monopoly. And there was some thought that they actually weren't fulfilling that part of their charter, that they were more content just to uh, make profit from the fur trade, but stay on the coast and hug the coast, which you really can't blame them. I mean, if you're in polar bear territory and you're in an unfamiliar environment, why would you want to venture out there? Uh, So they tended to hug the coast of Hudson and James Bay and stay inside their actually quite impressive uh, forts or fortresses that they constructed there. And you can see the ruins of some of those um, still there today. I mean, they're, they're pretty impressive military structures um, with, you know, f- high walls and, and battlements, canyons. So most of them didn't want to venture outside the walls of the fort. They just wanted to stay in there and let the First Nations come to them. And the First Nations would do that in the summer. You know, they would canoe down the rivers flowing into Hudson Bay and trade you know, furs for iron tools or whatever else it was they were trading. But uh, there was some criticisms directed towards the HBC that they weren't fulfilling the exploration side of their their charter, of their mandate, that they had to take risks and venture beyond the walls and go into the interior. So they're like a company of (laughs) (laughs) non-adventurers. Yeah, that they're not adventuring far enough. I mean, in their defense, they'd probably say, hey, we just crossed 3,000 miles of open ocean, and then we sailed across uh, iceberg-laden Hudson Bay. So we've done enough adventuring. We want to just play it safe when we're actually on the land. Uh, So they needed someone to go inland. They wanted someone to... Because the Hudson Bay men had no idea... Uh, what lied beyond the horizon. I mean, they can basically see as far as the horizon from the walls of their forts, and they don't know what's beyond that. And again, there's language barriers. So even if they could have asked one of the local indigenous people, they wouldn't necessarily understand everything. I mean, even if they can kind of work out through sign language, it's very difficult. But Kelsey comes along. He's this boy, so he enters the trade young. He's his apprentice there. And within a few years, he's, he's, he's spent enough time with the Assiniboine who, and the Cree and the Ojibwe, people who, different nations, uh, different tribes that would be coming to the fort, and he takes well to them. And he's done some traveling up and down the, the vicinity of where the forts are. Uh, so he, he, you know, he's getting familiar with native methods of travel. And he's selected in 1691 um, by the company. He's hand-picked to go alone. There won't be any other Europeans accompanying him to go alone with the Assiniboine far into the interior uh, to a place where no outsider has ever been before. Um, And he's going to make a journey of many hundreds of kilometers inland into an environment that's totally new, not only to him, but to to all of his colleagues, right, uh, back on the coast there. So he's sent with those Assiniboine hunters inland to explore and and really find out what's there because they, they don't really have... Uh, a very definitive idea yet. I mean, I'm talking about how there's language barriers, so even if they could ask uh, the local people who are trading with them, they're not necessarily going to get much of the detail from those uh, accounts. 
So ultimately, he becomes what we think is the first, as you say, non-Indigenous person to reach the prairies. Is that right? Yeah, he's thought to be the first outsider mm-hmm. um, to reach what's now the Great Plains. And the North American Great Plains are one of the great um, ecosystems yeah. of the North American continent. I mean, it's astonishing. And if you read uh, later accounts from 200 years later in the 1800s, mm. you can get a sense of what it must have been like. I mean, you read these accounts of people in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they're traveling west from eastern Canada, and they're just passing through endless forest. I mean, it's, it's pine and spruce and for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. And then out of nowhere, they come out of the, the forest, and they just see what looks to them like an ocean of prairie, and they can't believe the, the jarring contrast. And even today, in 2020, if you've driven the Trans-Canada Highway... Yeah. Uh, you know when you hit the 100th meridian, yeah, roughly, yeah. Uh, the Great Plains begin, yeah, and, yeah. It, and it is really quite the sight. Yeah, good enough that the tragedy had <laughs> wrote a song about it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, Kelsey is the first outsider. Right. I mean, he's the first person from far away uh, to experience that, because mm-hmm. obviously the indigenous people are, have already experienced it in that area, but he's the first outsider um, to experience that. And he goes inland, and, and he describes that in verse in his diary of what it was like reaching this, this great sort of plain. You know, yeah. this kind of savanna landscape that's totally different right. um, than the boreal forest that surrounds it. So it's just an ocean of prairie, of, of grassland habitat that stretches for thousands of kilometers. He's seeing the bison herds, he's seeing, yeah, I mean, what is he describing? Well, he's, he's actually describing a lot of the, the flora and the fauna, the animal life and mm. the plant life. And he's meeting with animals that he hasn't seen before, even though he's now lived in North America for about seven years um, so he's pretty familiar by this point with the with the animals that are being trapped and traded at the at the Hudson Bay P- Company posts. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would know polar bears, he would know caribou, um, he would know snowshoe hares, and, and and these kind of animals. But there are a whole different set of animals that live on the grasslands in the interior, and these are wholly new to him. So now he's encountering things like pronghorn antelopes, mm. um, bison, as you as you mentioned. You know, pretty big, impressive animal. And uh, probably most interesting of all is he describes encountering a new type of bear Mm -hmm. um, that neither he nor any other European has ever seen or heard of. I mean, they've seen black bears and they've seen uh, polar bears, but he comes to this enormous bear and, you know, he's he's being told about it. You have to picture him around his campfires at night, um, huddled with his Assiniboine hunters, and they're telling him tales of this enormous bear um, with great curved claws and, uh, you know, grizzled fur, and it's, it's, it's this enormous animal um, with a huge hump on its back, and they say it's the bear that makes food of man, you know, the man-eater. Wow. And this has to be terrifying. Yeah. I mean, remember, remember, this is the 1600s. Uh, you know, firearms are mostly noisemakers. Yeah. They're not very effective. Uh, you know, those, uh, those flintlock weapons they had, they didn't work in the rain, they didn't work if it was windy, and they, you couldn't hit the broadside of the barn with one. Right. So their weapons are essentially edged weapons, um, you know, arrows and lances or, or spears, and they're traveling in this very open landscape, you know, this sea of, of grasslands where you don't have any trees to climb if a bear comes in your direction. And Kelsey is being told these stories by the greatest hunters he's ever seen in his life. I mean, he's full of admiration for these Assiniboine hunters and their amazing skills, but even them are saying... You know, as good as we are, some of us get eaten by these bears every once in a while. They'll take us down. They are the top of the food chain here. Wow. And this has got to be, uh, you know, sweaty palm-inducing to young Kelsey to hear these stories. Um, but he's very curious. I mean, that was sort of the mark of him as an explorer. They had that 
thirst for the unknown. He wanted to know. And uh, eventually he, counter, he encounters these grizzly bears, and he says that the Assiniboine um, actually hunt them. And he wanted them to preserve a skin of the great grizzly bear and let him take it, take it back as a specimen to the coast so he could show everyone, and they believe him, that there were these giant bears that lived on the prairies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said the Assiniboine wouldn't do that, that they didn't want to preserve um, the skin of the grizzly bear, because to them, they said that you know this bear, we hold it in such awe, um, such reverence, because it is so big and powerful that it, you know, it occupies a very important place in our, um, our cosmology, and we, we don't want to preserve its skin. So he actually says in his diary he wasn't able to bring back any skins of the, of the bear that they saw on, on the plains. So you talk about him traveling with the Assiniboine. Uh, was it the same group he was with the whole time? What do we know about that and that interaction? Because obviously he wasn't doing this trip on his own, as most... Europeans really never did in, in that time, really. They, they, you needed the First Nations guides. So do we know who he was traveling with? And uh, We don't know a whole lot about them. I mean, they were the Cinnaboyne, who were one of the, the foremost uh, Plains nations, and right. they, they ranged all over the Plains and even up into the boreal forest, and they would make journeys uh, by canoe if they needed to all the way out to the coast, but they're very versatile. I mean, a lot of the time they would be traveling on foot on the Plains, but he would have encountered many different um, nations, uh, on his journey in many different tribes, and uh, not just as Cinnaboy, he would have encountered other ones. And this is something that uh, comes through in his diary, that, you know, we often think, I think, we make the mistake of, of lumping all indigenous people into the same category, which is really a modern social construct. We have to remember, this is an immense geographical area, and there are many different uh, nations there, and they have their own histories, their own politics, their own rivalries, um, their own interests, their own hostilities. So he's very aware, Kelsey is, that the Assiniboines have enemies, and they are at war with these people. And we have to have scouts posted outside our camp at night along the river and up on the high ground to make sure that none of these enemy nations come along. And in, in, and in this way, if you think of one of those Assiniboine guys getting on board one of those Hudson's Bay Company ships and going the other direction across the ocean to Europe, uh, this is something they would have figured out pretty soon as well, that, hey, these Europeans aren't all the same either. Uh, you know, these, these Scots are like these, you know, they're often at war with their neighbors, the English down here in the 1600s. And, yeah. and they're often fighting these people across the channel. And it's just, it's bewildering. It's this babble of different warring nations. And that's what Europe was in the 1600s. I mean, it's just uh, different warring tribes in Europe. So that's kind of this complex political world that uh, Kelsey has, has entered into on the plains where there's shifting alliances between different plains nations and they're often fighting each other. Um, so, yeah, he would have been encountering a lot of different cultures and people, but he was staying within the Assiniboine as kind of like his, his friends and his guides, people he felt comfortable with and he knew. And he, if he was smart, he wouldn't want to venture too far on his own at all. I mean, he'd want to stay with that group. Mm-hmm. So he was gone for basically a summer season is what it would have been. for. And do we know how far he got? Uh, we don't know exactly how far he got because he didn't have those kind of, um, the kind of mathematical skill and astronomy skills yeah. um, to make detailed maps of his route mm-hmm. um, the way that some later explorers could do. So it's we're just sort of speculating based on his diary of where exactly he got. I mean, they had crude maps and things, but he must have got somewhere around what's now uh, southern Saskatchewan. You know, he was in that area, give or take. He traveled pretty far, and uh, he lived to tell about it, obviously, because he came back and he left his diary. Yeah. And what was the impact of that journey in terms of for the company for <laughs> well the immediate impact was actually not a whole lot um 
Kelsey does his journey, but then he's largely, it's largely forgotten about. I mean, the Hudson's Bay Company doesn't immediately follow up on this at all. Um, They say there's bears out there that can eat us. Uh, We thought polar bears were bad enough, and now you tell us there's more inland. I think we'll just stay inside our forts. So the immediate effect is is largely null. They don't follow up. They don't go into the interior and build forts right away. Uh, They largely maintain their strategy of just staying on the coast, and that won't really change for 100 years almost. Um, Well, not quite 100 years, 75 years or so. They'll just stay on that coast. And you can see their logic. I mean, it's a good system that they've worked out where they have all these rivers that flow into Hudson Bay. They don't need to travel. They can stay there, and that's their home base. And these First Nations who want to trade um, can do their journeys. You know, they can come down river. And actually, many of those interior tribes didn't make the journey. They would simply go, you know, one-fifth of the way and then meet uh, another nation, like the Cree, mm-hmm. trade with them, and then they would go the rest of the way as middlemen. Um, so they didn't really want to go inland. I mean, they had Kelsey's report. It was sent to the governors across the ocean in London, but they didn't act on it. And uh, not a whole lot of exploration will take place. I mean, there's James Knight. Um, he's looking for you know rumored mineral deposits in the Northwest Passage. Uh, but it won't really be until uh, Samuel Hearn, mm-hmm. you know, 75-odd years later, 80 years later, that they go back into the interior and start doing that exploration again. But they won't really want to go down into the plains until um, their rivals force their hands, the Northwest Company, and and they realize they don't have a choice. Now they've got to follow up on this and go inland. So you mentioned Samuel Hearn, which brings me to another person I want to talk about, was a First Nations leader named Matanabe. And he did some mapping for the Hudson's Bay Company initially, wound up working with Hearn, but on his own wound up mapping. Can you just tell us a bit about him? So... Matanabe is one of the, the great uh, Dene leaders, and he's, he's actually one of the greatest figures in, in, I think, Canadian history, and not just exploration history. And, and people won't know about him at all, so I, please go on. I, <laughs> I, honestly, I think this is not a name that resonates, I mean, yeah. probably enough. Matanabe was this great uh, Dene leader in the, the late 1700s, and um, you know the Dene are, are the most northern of uh, the people who dwell south of the, the tree line um, in the, the subarctic. And uh, they range across a huge area from the coast of Hudson Bay all the way over to the Western Mountains. So they cover an immense territory. And, uh, they, I mean, they have rivalries at the time with their neighbors to the north, the Inuit, who they're at war with. And they're at war with their neighbors to the south, the Cree. Um, and and Matanabe has an interesting history in that he, he learns um, the language of his southern rivals, the, the Cree language. Um, and he actually will play sort of the role of peacemaker and uh, ending hostilities between them, which the Hudson's Bay Company actually wants because they think uh, this war is bad for the trade. I mean, we don't want war. We want furs coming into our forts. And uh, he becomes familiar with the company, and he spends time at the company forts, and he learns some English. It doesn't seem that he ever became fluent, but he he learns a bit to communicate. Mm -hmm. And uh, the company, the Hudson's Bay Company, recognizes this is a guy of unusual qualities. I mean, for one thing, the accounts that have survived of him say that he was pretty physically imposing. I mean, he was described as a tall, striking, uh, strong person. You know, he he, would, he towered over everyone else, and he was uh, he was reputed to be an amazing hunter. You know, even among the standards of the Dene, he was singled out as as one of the greatest of all hunters, um, and a great traveler, a guy who could could wander further than anyone else. Um, so the Hudson's Bay Company recognized his talents as as a diplomat as a hunter, as a traveler, and they actually deputized him as an explorer. So he was a Hudson's Bay Company explorer, and uh, 
they sent him inland, you know, because they, the company, the that's the other thing. The territory is so vast that even the Dene, we shouldn't take for granted. I mean, they don't have omniscient knowledge. They can't just map everything off the top of their head any more than you can ask someone in the Scottish Highlands right. to map southern England. So Matanabe himself has to make journeys of exploration, and he's making notes along the way. I mean, he's making maps, and some of those maps still survive to this day. You could see them in Winnipeg in the Hudson Bay Company archives, drawn by his own hand. And he's mapping the area uh, along the northwest coast of Hudson Bay and some of the rivers flowing down in there. And he's you know, doing these journeys mostly on foot. He's traveling on foot. He's very resourceful. And he's mapping many of the rivers and lakes that are out there. And, and there's almost infinite number. I mean, there's over 3 million lakes in Canada, maybe 2 million in the north, tens right. of thousands of different waterways. So he's doing this, and he's doing it quite successfully. And the Hudson's Bay Company, meanwhile, across the ocean over in London, the governors decide that they want to actually um, rekindle exploration and choose someone, much like they did Kelsey in the 1600s, to go inland um, and to make maps and maybe to find a Northwest Passage and maybe to find these rumored deposits of copper that are said to be somewhere out there. And uh, they choose a young sailor uh, named Samuel Hearn. And he was a sailor by trade before he came into the Hudson Bay Company as a young guy in his 20s. And Hearn has many of those same traits that Kelsey does. He's uh, kind of distinguished as being someone who's really good at getting along with people from other cultures, having a, a knack for languages and, you know, being very open. You know, we, he's actually kind of a bohemian eccentric. He, he keeps beavers as pets. Um, he, he doesn't like Sunday's uh, church service, which rankles some feathers in the company, like a young David Thompson actually is kind of scandalized by the fact that Hearn says, I'm not a Christian. He, he says, my only Bible is Voltaire. Um, so he's kind of this bohemian eccentric who's very open to Dene culture and indigenous cultures. And the company decides to select this young sailor, Hearn, um, to go inland. And you have to remember, Matanabe's not exactly just hanging out on the sofa inside the fort. They don't know where he is. He's, he could be a thousand kilometers away. Right. Um, so they have no idea where he is, and there's no way to keep in touch. They don't have any of our modern uh, communication devices. So nobody knows where he's gone off to. And Hearn is sent inland with some, uh, whatever guides he can scrounge up from around the company forts. And he, he chooses some, actually he has chosen for him by his superior, uh, some of the local Dene guides. And it doesn't, and it doesn't go very well at all. Um, he's supposed to wander for 1,000 kilometers across the subarctic and the Arctic to find either the Northwest Passage or these copper deposits that are somewhere out there on the yeah. edge of the known world. Yeah. Just a couple small things, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and the expedition fails. It fails miserably. I mean, um, when they're only a few hundred kilometers from the fort, Hearn's guides actually uh, rob him and abandon him and say, you're on your own. And this is just the reality of the subarctic world. I mean, it's right. it's a place where... It's one of the most difficult environments to survive in. I mean, again, bitterly cold temperatures for most of the year. Um, even if you just compare it to southern Canada, there's not nearly as many wild edibles. Uh, there's not nearly the same abundance of animal species, right? So it's a harder place to survive. And within a few hundred kilometers of the fort, uh, those Dene guides simply abandon her and say, we're not going on some mad quest for a river we've never even heard of, right? We haven't been there. It's thousands of kilometers away. They're, they're Inuit up there. Um, we, we could be killed. We're not going over there. And Hearn is, is left destitute and he has to return with his tail between his legs back to the fort. And he, you know, he's, he's, they did a good job selecting him because he doesn't, he could have thrown in the towel and quit, but he's determined to go right back out again. And, uh, he wastes no time in, set, in finding new guides and setting off a second time. 
And this time he makes it a little bit further. They do some really arduous traveling on foot. It's very difficult. Uh, conditions are rough. But again, the same thing happens. His guides say, look, you know, we know our own home hunting territories really well, but we don't know anything about what's beyond that. We don't know where this crazy river is, if it even exists at all. And they give up and they abandon him and he's left on his own to return uh, again. Wow. And it's on that return trip that uh, one of those rare, you know, one of those strange coincidences that seems to happen in history that changes the course of history happens. And on his way back uh, to the fort, all crestfallen and disappointed, Hearn uh, comes across this camp um, with these strangers he's never met before. And, and it turns out, that, you know, he's, he says this, this stranger here at his camp is very courteous and kind, and he sees that Hearn is suffering. I mean, he's suffered some pretty hard... They, they were basically starving on this march back. And mm. this stranger who he says has a very, you know, prepossessing appearance. He's this really impressive-looking figure. Um, you know, he takes me, he sits me down by the fire, and he warms me, and he brings me food, and uh, he's very courteous and benevolent. And it turns out that this is, lo and behold, Matanabe. I know it. And uh, this is their first meeting. Yeah. And uh, Hearn is immediately impressed and struck by this guy. I mean, he, he knows that this is a man of unusual qualities. This is a guy who would stand out in any setting, anywhere in the world. I mean, he's just one of those rare natural born leaders. And they start talking around the campfire and Hearn explains what he's been doing, (laughs) that he's been going on these quests to go find this river. And uh, Matanabe says, I want to find that river. Let me be your guide because he has that same wanderlust. I mean, he is an explorer in his own right. He's done previous expeditions and you can kind of see that his own, um, thirst for the unknown and for adventure is being wedded, um, you know, realizing that they're going to do this unprecedented journey, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of kilometers to this faraway place. And Batanabe wants to do it. So he says, look, let's go back and talk to your superiors. They know me. I carry quite a bit of weight as a leader of the Dene. And uh, we'll get approval. Matanabe's smart. He wants to go right to the, uh, the factor at the fort and get approval. And we'll go back and we'll do this expedition proper, and you're going to listen to me, and, you know, you went wrong on your first two, but you're doing it all wrong. You listen to me, and we'll get there. And that's what they do. Uh, they, they waste no time going back. They get approval from the factor, and they set off again on a third time. Same but, season. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, just within days, weeks, wow. I think. Yeah. I mean, Hearn, you got to give full credit to Hearn. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he could have said, I want out of here. I want to go back. Sure. I'd never want to go back again, but they do. And... Matanabe's approach is all different. He says, look, you can't just make a beeline straight across Arctic tundra for this river you think is out there. That's a recipe for disaster. You'll starve to death if you do that. This journey is going to take years because we can't travel in a direct line. We've got to stay within the forest for as much as we can, which, remember, the Dene is a a forest culture. Um, They don't like going onto the tundra unlike the Inuit, if they can avoid it. They want to stay within the, within the black spruce. So that's what Matanabe says. We're going to go west and stay inside the tree line for as long as we can, and we're going to follow the caribou for as far as we can because we've got to build up um, food reserves, and we've got to take this slow. So they actually set off on this huge meandering journey, and we can't be entirely sure exactly what route we, they took. I mean, some of the descriptions we can match up. You know, here they are at Great Slave Lake, or here they are north of there, but, you know, some of the route is, 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 is lost. But they eventually do get all the way to the Copper Mine River, 
And they're doing this on foot? They're doing this on foot. I mean, that's the thing. I yeah. mean, you have to, that's the other environment. I mean, we think of the birch bark canoe as the icon of Canada, but yeah. it, it really isn't. That's the icon of a particular Canadian environment where you actually have big enough birch trees that are growing to ba- yeah, yeah. make canoes out of. But they don't do that on the West Coast. They don't do that in the Arctic. And they right. don't do that in the Dene lands either because they don't have birch trees big enough to build canoes out of. So they actually are... Those Dene are extremely resourceful. They know how to make a canoe in a hurry if they want to. And Hearn says they were incredibly skilled with almost no tools, you know, just basically an awl and a knife. They could build you a canoe in a matter of hours. But that was only something they did usually to cross rivers. The rest of the time they're traveling on foot, which is how Hearn and his party, uh, Matanabe and the others, how they traveled. They traveled on foot for thousands of kilometers, which is incredibly difficult that they did this, living off the land as they went. And when they came to a giant roaring river, with rapids and things, and if they couldn't get across it on foot, then the Dene would simply build a canoe with whatever they had at hand. So they might just, you know, gather up some black spruce, build a frame, and then if they don't have birch bark, they'll use whatever is at hand. So that could be canvas from a tent, or it could be uh, moose or caribou hide. You know, whatever they need just to get across this river, uh, they were masters, experts at making that on the spot. And Hearn is just full of admiration for their unparalleled skill in being able to do this. But they, they know that they can't do it in a direct line. So that's why their journey takes like over a year and a half in this circular sort of winding, meandering route. But they right. succeed. They finally get to this Coppermine River, which is just a translation of the name that the Dene were using for it, this river that copper comes from. And they're talking about sort of raw native copper, which you can see in various places in Canada, um, just lying on the surface of the earth. But that's what they're looking for. And they make it all the way there. And the, you know, the end of the story is that the copper is, is not abundant enough to be of any real use to the company. I mean, they do actually fill up some, they put it on their ships a little bit, but they don't use it for a whole lot. And when they see the Coppermine River, it's just full of rapids and canyons, and they realize it'll never be a navigable route. Um, it's just way too dangerous, a whitewater river. Uh, so their journey doesn't actually accomplish much from the company's perspective, other than in, in ruling areas out, that they know there's no Northwest Passage there. But in terms of the, you know, the physical achievement of, of Ahern and Metonymy, it still ranks to this day as one of the greatest journeys uh, anywhere in the world, not just Canada, um, ever performed. I mean, it's just this impressive feat that they pulled off because okay. they make it all the way back again. And how long does that take? It took years. I mean, two years, basically, they were wandering there. Right. And, and Hearn really, it does sound like, I mean, he's not doing this without Matanabe, and Matanabe's really... No, Matanabe is the leader. Yeah, yeah. there's no... It, Hearn is not the leader. He's not even the co-leader. I mean, he's very much um, so a junior member. Ride, yeah. He's a junior member of the party. Uh, Matanabe is the is the chief explorer. He's the leader. And, and you know, the impressive thing about Hearn is that, uh, unlike so, so many other explorers, European explorers, um, you know, we might think of Stanley or someone like that, um, not giving credit to his, his local guides. Hearn, Hearn very much um, gives Matanabe all the credit. I mean, he 100% says he's the, re- he's the real leader. I mean, without him, I'd be lost. It's his skills. So, you know, Hearn, to his credit, and this is kind of keeping with his eccentric, bohemian, um, I don't read the Bible, I read Voltaire sort of persona. He's, he's very much um, giving full credit to Matanabe in the book that's published after his death. Um, and saying all these things, unlike other explorers uh, who came later, like Stanley in Africa being you know, one of those examples of people who just sort of brush over the invaluable contributions of their local guides. Well, yeah, absolutely. And also not listening to the local guides and just barging forward. Exactly, you know, right? yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, that was one of Hearn's strengths, that he was smart enough to know that I can't do this 
uh, without their their knowledge. So I'm going to listen to them. And he was willing, and I don't think very many explorers would have been, to live off the land as a Dene, to eat what they eat, to wear what they wear, to travel uh, how they travel, to speak their language, to do everything they did in order to pull off this objective that he'd been given by the HBC, uh, which was to find this river. And he realized this is the only way it's going to work because any other way was just going to end in failure. They didn't have any other way to do it. So he writes this book. What's the impact of that? Well, the book is, uh, I think, one of the greatest works of exploration literature ever written. Yeah. Uh, but Hearn, I mean, Hearn and Matonavi do not have a happy ending. They both die relatively young and tragically. Uh, Matonavi actually commits suicide after the Hudson's Bay Company is uh, no more. I mean, in the American Revolution, uh, the French, uh, allied to the American rebels, send a fleet into Hudson Bay, and they actually capture those British fur trade forts, and uh, and they're taken away as prisoners of war, including Hearn. Hearn is, is escorted from the fort, and he's put on a ship, and he's taken away as, as a POW. And Matonabe, when uh, this happens and the fort is no more, uh, he ends up uh, committing suicide. Mm. And, you know, it, it, you can kind of picture him as like a, um, like a Cassius or a Brutus, you know. It's like this ancient code of honor. Right. And when we think of these figures from, you know, ancient Greece or any warrior culture anywhere in the world, they, this is often something they would do, is they would fall on their sword, like those Romans I mentioned. And Matonabe actually ends up doing that. He, he takes his own life after the fall of the fort, and it seems like it's never coming back. It's gone for years, right? It's done. That world is over. This world that had, had you know, been the whole world he'd known since birth because the Hudson's Bay Company long predated him, and it was sort of the, had given him his prestige and, and his, his, was very important to him. And Hearn also has a tragic, tragic ending. He does come back after the American Revolution is over, after the Treaty of Paris in 1783, and he's the factor, but he's he's just alone, and he's a, he's a lone, sad guy because... Matonabe was more than just his guide. It was his best friend. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, some have even said it was his soulmate. These were two peas in a pod, these guys. And you can see um, his increasing loneliness and his sadness. And when he finally was sent back to England for good, it was said that um, among his contemporaries that he just couldn't bl- he couldn't fit into English society. He'd spent so long away, and he'd been a, a, he'd been a sailor. He didn't have a boyhood. He was sent to see a, he was sent to sea as a boy. Uh, he couldn't fit in, and it said, you know, one of the accounts that was written about him is that he didn't understand the value of money because he'd lived so long in a society that didn't have any, and that people took advantage of him. So Hearn dies penniless and and largely unknown um, in England. I mean, some people did know that he had done some remarkable things. There was a zoologist, uh, Thomas Pennant, who's like the father of British zoology, an important forerunner of Darwin, right. and he actually seeks Hearn out and profits from Hearn's observations, because Hearn was remarkably good at describing uh, animal life. I mean, he wrote the most detailed, almost encyclopedia of all the animals he encountered. I mm-hmm. mean, really, really detailed descriptions of beavers and minks and moose. And this stuff was enriched uh, zoology textbooks in Europe, but largely Hearn was forgotten. And, and Hearn had spent all his time, you know, writing this account of his travels, but he never lived to see it published. He died, and it was still a, just a, a series of notes that hadn't been published. And it'll be taken after his death, right. edited and published in 1795, but he never lived to see it. And uh, it, it made, did make quite a bit of a splash in the literary circles of Europe at that time. Um, but his reputation didn't didn't survive that. He was largely forgotten over the course of the 19th century until he was rediscovered uh, more recently. I mean, I I mean, I guess to the, he is 
as far as explorers go, he's he's better known than others, but he, he's obviously not a household name in Canada no. any more than Matanabe is. Right. <laughs> Fascinating. So you, you have um, Hearn and you have um, Kelsey, both guys who make an effort or seem to actually enjoy blending in with the indigenous cultures and, and traveling with them. I mean, how out of the norm would that have been for Hudson's Bay Company factors or traders? It wasn't It wasn't as common among the Hudson's Bay Company as it was among the Northwest Company. Right, which was the competitor at the time. Is their competitor, and eventually they merge, yeah. so they do become one um, after the 1820s. But the Hudson's Bay Company, their approach was a little bit different in the sense that they wanted to build those forts and stay in the forts and let the Native people do the traveling and come to them. So... People like Kelsey and Hearn are, are largely the exceptions who did these expeditions that went inland and, and uh, lived among the indigenous people. That was a little bit unusual. Uh, the Northwest Company, could they didn't have the monopoly from the king to go build forts on the Hudson's Bay coast, so they didn't have that luxury. And they had no choice by necessity with their headquarters in Montreal. Uh, those interior people thousands of kilometers away are not going to go canoeing to Montreal. <laughs> no way. They're going to go to Hudson Bay. Um, so the Northwest Company, by necessity, realized we've got to figure out some other approach. Um, you know, if the natives aren't going to come to us, we've got to go to them. So that's why they developed the Voyageurs, um, this very specialized canoeing type that excels at canoeing so that they can actually go inland and cut off the supply of furs going to the, the coast. So they actually, the Northwest Company sends their Voyageurs and their Scottish traders way inland on these epic journeys along, you know, the Great Lakes and into the plains to meet with the First Nations and to cut them off before they get to Hudson's Bay Company. So they, they get the competitive edge, and they, they develop that canoeing culture of going inland uh, much more so than the HBC does. But eventually they will become the HBC as they merge together, and the HBC, by necessity, realizes we've got to get, we can't stay on the coast anymore. So they actually will start going inland and building posts. And one of the people they send inland to build posts is Samuel Hearn. Uh, he goes inland and builds Cumberland House. Um, so that's one of the first inland HBC posts. So they eventually do start doing that. But Henry, but Hearn and, and Kelsey are, are very much unique figures, I think, in the early history of the company in terms of going into the interior of exploring and adopting uh, indigenous languages and, and indigenous culture and living that lifestyle for years. Well, listen, thank you so much for giving us this sort of window into the, the early explorations of the Hudson's Bay Company. And I, we should add, too, that you have a book out now called Beyond the Trees, your journeys through some, some of these areas. So I would definitely encourage people to go out and pick that up. But uh, thank you, Adam Schultz, for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. That's Adam Schultz, Royal Canadian Geographical Society Explorer-in-Residence, on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. On the next episode of this series marking the 350th anniversary of the Hudson's Bay Company, we look at the deeply intertwined history of the HBC and the Métis in a conversation with Jean Taillet, best-selling author of The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation. And thanks so much again to the good people of HBC Heritage for making this podcast series possible. To learn more about the early explorers of the Hudson's Bay Company, be sure to visit hbcheritage.ca. And please also be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. If you like us, give us a rating, write a review, tell your friends about us, and share us with others on social media. It all helps. So until we explore again... I'm David McGuffin. Want even more great Canadian Geographic content? 
Visit cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to order Canadian Geographic magazine. A subscription gets you six issues of the magazine each year with stories that will entertain, surprise and educate you about the remarkable Canadian landscape, wildlife and people. Subscribe today at cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe.